0: You're listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast with Chris
1: Kidwell and Sam Glover.
0: Sam, has anything happened um, since we recorded last?
1: So much has happened, Christopher. The world turns.
0: Yes, it does. And we're glad it does. It would be uh, more catastrophic than probably anything this earth has ever experienced uh, were it to stop turning.
1: Well, a not insignificant portion of people would welcome what would literally scientifically happen if we did, uh, because we would be thrown. Uh, I don't I forget the direction, but um, we would be thrown forward, basically, from the lost momentum at several thousand miles an hour and almost certainly die. Really? But, really? I, don't know, I mean, details.
0: Yeah, just just details. Um, let, let's talk about the most recent thing. Let's sort of work backwards. Um, yesterday, our president uh, said in basically discussing I want to say in context here, he was discussing sort of reopening the economy and uh, sort of how he is going to interact moving forward with the states. Uh, and he used a phrase that I think rightfully spooked a lot of people when he said that he has or the president has total authority. It's a phrase he uttered, I think, twice uh right. in the middle of his press briefing yes, yesterday which uh that's not something you want to hear any politician uh here let alone uh the politician the person who holds politi- the most powerful political office arguably on earth um uh, and it also makes me wonder sort of what the interaction there is with the 10th amendment which would basically tell him no Uh, what that 10th amendment would be. But yeah, what what did you think of the president saying that he has total authority?
1: Okay. Well, first I want to preface this by saying a lot of my exposure to these press conferences has been the interplay of libs crying and people saying cry more lib, but more seriously, like reactions after the fact, just because, Honestly, watching press conferences has never really gotten me going. But uh, seeing clips, seeing highlights, seeing responses from multiple angles and perspectives has been interesting. But uh, people bring up the Tenth Amendment. And uh, there are some of us who might not know what that Tenth Amendment is. And uh, because I have uh, the Constitution on Logos Bible Software, figure that one out. Uh, the 10th Amendment reads The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So, just with that in mind, uh, people that struggle to remember itemized lists like myself uh, can have that. But um, I'm of multiple minds. On the one hand, uh, anyone that's surprised by Trump having a more authoritarian streak to his personality. I mean, you don't put yourself in a position to run multiple companies, some of them into the ground without a desire to run things and be in charge of things. Like just that's in his nature. But at the same time, a part of me, uh, there's the kind of, chaotic, neutral side of me that says, oh, he's just saying these things to rile journalists and the like up. And on one level that worked because now everyone cares about the 10th amendment all of a sudden, on the other hand, my less chaotic and more cynical side just says that Trump doesn't have a filter. And he says, whatever comes to mind at the time.
0: Uh, I, I wonder you know, you mentioned the riling up, riling up different news agencies and riling up different people. This is something that that sort of statement is a little bit more widespread. Um, it's not just going to rile up CNN. It's not just going to rile up in MSNBC. It's going to rile up everyone. Uh, you know, you've even got some very conservative uh, commentators who have come out last night and this morning and, and basically said, you know, no, 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 um, you know, people who would normally s- support Trump at the very least in these press briefings, uh, it's because when you talk about the president with regard to authority, with regard to power, uh, what he should and shouldn't be doing, uh, there's a line there that sometimes presidents, most presidents fail to recognize one way or another, um, you know, with President Obama, you had all of these executive orders uh, signed. Um, uh, just as one example, the one that really pops into my mind, and I'm to be clear, I'm not saying that this is the same thing as what Trump did, but it does remind me because of the language used is uh, what happened with Nixon. Uh, Nixon being taped, among other things, as saying, you know, it's not illegal if the president does it, right? Um, that's not to be clear. Once again, that's not the same thing as what's going on here. Uh, Nixon ended up being uh, impeached and then resigned uh, as a result, uh, and and was involved in potentially criminal activity. Um, you know whether he, he did it or not, he should have known about it. That sort of thing. Um, and with Trump, you're talking about how to handle things in the middle of. An unprecedented pandemic uh, but it's still this idea that the president should be uh, should have power given to him that isn't explicitly given to him at least the president feels that way and I wonder if that was a slip of the tongue that maybe revealed how he felt about that I'm a hundred percent on board with what you're talking about with regard to maybe an authoritarian bent Uh, and I don't when you say that I don't think you mean it sort of maliciously that that really just plays into his personality and that, that that plays into simply who he is and and what he's about um but when it comes to how the government operates even in the midst of a pandemic i think that's a very clear line that he can't and shouldn't cross uh and and it's one i think he probably needs to be a little bit more wary of moving forward because you know he he does have support not Universal by any stretch, but he does have support uh, from at least pockets of people right now. If he talks about handling this pandemic in authoritarian terms, uh, conflicting with, you know, especially state governments and local governments on how to handle things, that support will dry up. Um, you know that that's that's in line. He does not want to test very often, uh, and and if he knew what he was doing when he said it yesterday, and I'm not I'm not convinced he did. I feel like that was very off the cuff uh from him. But if he knew what he was doing when he said it yesterday, then he would do well to recognize uh the negative pushback from basically all sides. I've not seen a, a positive defense of what he said yesterday. Uh whereas throughout this whole pandemic, through these briefings, I've seen basically a positive defense, at least in some way, shape or form, for virtually every other thing he said up to
1: this point. Yeah, and I would agree. And I would also just to kind of further that question of whether you really said it or meant it. Um, there is something resembling a disconnect often between what Trump says out in public and actual policy that gets passed. And lots of people fail to notice that. But uh, one of the great examples of that. Is that while Trump is out publicly speaking and rah-rah-rahing, he's also quietly picking judges. He's quietly having policy pass things like that. And like during this pandemic, there's not a whole lot of the policy side of things. But even right now, there is a, a nominee for the D.C. Court of Appeals that is being considered. That is also going to be important for. A question of religious liberty that might get discussed later but again the track record suggests off the cuff but it never hurts to perk your ears up and pay attention and watch out for things that can genuinely be red flags you don't have to hoist the flag and say everything's on red alert but you also don't have to just completely ignore something so I, I think that paying attention but also paying attention in light of the previous track record is prudent, I, as with pretty much anything that Trump does.
0: I agree. Um, it, it's just something that that language is, as far as I can tell, on a level we haven't seen before from him. Um, I, you know, I'm instantly going to take back what he what I just said. I, I seem to remember. Uh, him at the 2016 rnc basically saying that he is the only one who can you know make america great again basically to shorten what would ended up being a fairly lengthy nomination acceptance speech at that rnc but he basically focused on uh you know the need to make america great again and how he is the only one who could do that and so there's there's a little bit of that um and so i you know i'm not when I sit here concerned with the language, I'm not necessarily concerned with, you know, him sort of taking over things, uh, taking over the government, generally taking over the nation generally in a way that would be inappropriate. I'm more concerned than anything else with how he views this particular situation, um, because he has a lot of responsibility right now. I don't I don't envy his position, whatever he does He's going to be criticized about it at least until this passes and probably for years on after that. Um, But that language, uh, that sort of language really ought to be, I I think, taboo uh, from the president himself at the very least, that there shouldn't even be any any mention of that, especially, by the way, when, you know, he seemed to have surrounded himself with, uh, with largely with helpful people. Very few people have criticized Dr. Fauci, although his relationship with the president is uh, hot and cold right now, it seems. Um, very few people have criticized Pence and how he's handled the situation, although there have been one or two nitpicks of some non-answers to questions. Uh, but you know, the, the president uh, has been seen to have been doing his best job when he lets the people beneath him do theirs. Uh, and that's that's true on this issue, and that's true – with most issues uh, that have come up during his presidency. Um, but this sort of language, I mean, it, it should set off a red flag in everyone's mind, e- even if it's not the red flag that says, oh, oh no, here it is. Here he goes, you know, we uh the government's going to devolve into something it was never meant to be. I'm not saying that. I just, you know, like I said, his, how he views himself with regard to this pandemic is the only thing that really concerns me out of this. Um, but like you said, he's, you know, he's got, uh, three plus years of track record behind him That suggests that maybe it's not going to be That bad But that language was jarring And I think it was I think rightfully so It was jarring um, Speaking of the president He uh, We finally know uh, Barring some shenanigans at the DNC uh, Who his opponent will be In this year's campaign uh, One One Joe Biden uh, is the presumptive.
1: Uh, hold demo- on. Joe, listen here, Jack Biden. Thank you.
0: Okay. Okay. Listen here, Jack. Uh, you know, Corn Pop was a bad dude, right? Um, he's the presumptive nominee after, and this happened basically right after either we finished recording or right after we. Published the podcast last week. Uh, Bernie Sanders sort of dropped out of the race. Uh, it's interesting. He made a point of basically saying that uh, you know he's still accruing delegates and he basically still wants to have a large influence um, on the on the uh, on the convention when it rolls around on the Democrat National Convention. Um, and it was, it was strange. Because, I
1: believe. Go ahead. Yeah, very sorry. I believe his exact language was that he was suspending his campaign, but I am fact-checking that in real time. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, My understanding is he he's not going to travel anymore. He's not going to do appearances, but he's going to stay on the ballot. All the different places he's on the ballot, he's going to accrue delegates, and he wants to basically make noise at the convention. And so it's basically him suspending it and it's an admission that he's not going to win the nomination uh and so there's not a lot of reason to sink money into his campaign anymore which that's just smart from an economic standpoint to stop campaigning when it's hopeless but at the same time he's basically saying here you know we're not done making noise even this election cycle um you know you kind of wonder if Making some noise and becoming problematic at the convention will be sort of a death rattle for this uh, campaign of Bernie Sanders because, uh, I mean, he could have just said straight up, you know, uh, we're you – know, we are completely done here. But he made a point of talking about the convention, made a point of talking about uh, delegates and accruing delegates, and so he's, he's not done as far as his activity, even if he is done campaigning.
1: Right. And I would even uh, I would even also note his uh, tentative endorsement of Biden as well. And I'm going to I'm going to drop what some will consider to be a hot take about Bernie. And don't worry, Chris, this isn't going to be one of those that you worry you're going to have to edit out. I hope it isn't at least um, you can only be a revolutionary so many times. Because Bernie's call, his entire time he's been in the real spotlight has been, we need, to, we need to bring drastic change, we need to do this and that. And the two times he has been in the limelight, running for president, running on revolution, change, rah, rah, rah. And to be fair to him, not like revolution in the sense of putting people against the wall, excuse me, bringing out guillotines, that sort of thing, nothing like that but is in drastic change, um, as some would see it. He's then turned around and endorsed the quote-unquote establishment, um, uh, the establishment candidate. And people, people's memories are longer than some will realize, and there are going to be some people who are going to be diehard Bernie fans no matter who what, and that if they're right, uh, they're There are times where loyalty to an ideal or your idea of a person can override that person's track record. But people are going to remember Bernie, I think, not as the change agent that the DNC needed, but as the guy who, when it mattered to stand up, decided to step aside Mm -hmm. as a result.
0: Well, and there's there's an element to this where he looks at the situation, he goes, well, I'm not going to win, so I'm going to support the guy who will win. Um, and that works if you're the right person to do that. So uh, Chris Christie made the rounds pretty quickly after Trump uh, was inaugurated as president. Uh, he made the rounds on you know, talk shows and whatnot. And one of the things that kept getting brought up was the fact that he was the first of the Uh, major republican candidates for the 2016 election uh to drop out and endorse uh donald trump and he ended up being uh, a big part of the transition team basically until jared kushner came in and said no you're not going to do that um which that's a separate story for another time but uh chris christie wasn't running on some sort of ideological like heavy ideological revolutionary type platform um you know uh christy and trump very similar on a lot of policy issues and as much as you can gauge what trump's policy positions are uh and you know they're not all that different from each other um you know even as far as background right Uh, they're both uh you know they're both New York, New Jersey type guys, um, you know, and and they've had a relationship for a while uh, that that predates uh, that 2016 campaign for quite some time. And, and Christie in, in those interviews and in those talk shows basically said, look, I wanted to be president. I was my first choice to be president. Uh, But once, uh, once I realized it was going to be him, I dropped out, and I supported him, and I wanted him to be the best president he could be. That works if you're Chris Christie. That works if, you know, uh, on the Democrat side of things, that works if you're Amy Klobuchar or if you're uh, Pete Buttigieg, right? If you're Democrats who are running, yes, you've got something to bring to the table, and I think most of the Democrats – not all of them, but most of the Democrats – had their own sort of unique take on why uh, they should be president. They had something to offer. Uh, but Bernie's entire position, like you said, is this radical change, this revolutionary approach. Um, and when he backs down and endorses the establishment candidate, it sours people in a way that your run of the mill candidate stepping down and endorsing someone else does not. Right? It, it's there's there's a very different uh there's a very different tone to what they're doing uh now in 2016 you can make the argument that uh bernie eventually got behind hillary uh because there was something you know maybe there was something in it for him via the party um you know, maybe there was an understanding that he was going to run in four years and the Democrat establishment wasn't going to tamper with things and make it basically impossible for him to win. Turns out right before Super Tuesday, all the candidates dropping out and endorsing Biden probably did that anyway. But that's another story for another time. When it comes to uh, Bernie dropping out this time and and, you know, tentatively endorsing Biden, at least in some way, shape or form, you wonder what's in it for him this time. Uh You wonder why he does it. You know, does he does he think that he's going to be part of the administration? Um, You know, I mean, it's not even like he has to worry about being taken off the uh, the primary ballot, uh, you know, for his own seat in Congress. Right. He runs as an independent. It's not like he has to rely on the Democrat Party uh, for that position. And so you wonder what's in it for him? Um, you wonder uh, you, you wonder what the angle is on his end because I, I don't see it. I don't understand it. Um, I understood it four years ago, even if I didn't agree with it. I don't understand it now. And this is working under the assumption of course that you know Bernie's fairly elderly and I'm working under the assumption that he's that he's got no shot of running in 2024.
1: Right. And I would even just suggest that, honestly, there may be nothing there this time around. Um, I've been reading a book uh, recently, and I've really enjoyed it, uh, warts and all, by uh, one Michael Malice. That's a pen name, mainly because I can't imagine how on earth you would end up in the real world with a real name like Michael Malice. But uh, The New Right. And in, in The New Right, something he mentions a few times is this insistence in politics that certain groups have of seeing things that aren't there. So I always want to, having read that and seeing that kind of play out, I want to try to at least grant the possibility that it may not be that Bernie's playing the long game at this point. It may be that he's just saying, okay, fine. I'm 11 trillion years old, and I'm just going to get out of the way this time because clearly, if nothing else, the DNC doesn't want me. The pe- well the people might want me but they the right people
0: don't but so then you go back you go back to the fact that he didn't actually get fully out of the way like if if that's, that's fair if that's the issue like he's fighting for something i'm fully convinced of that um i just don't know what it is uh I, you know i i cannot imagine uh biden picking bernie as his vp um you know I even just the demographic uh, demographic of having two older white guys, if you will, that I mean, that's not how the Democratic Party wants to present themselves to the world, Uh, let alone the fact that you want someone uh, you want someone who maybe has a little bit more control, maybe has a little bit uh, is a little bit better at playing politics, Um, you know, especially if there are some major concerns about Biden's health, about his uh, about his mental stamina, those sorts of things, which you know, voters are going to have concerns about. Some of those are alleviated uh, based on the VP. It happened in 2016 with Trump. There are plenty of people that voted for Trump not because they wanted Trump to be president, but because Vince, uh, Vince, goodness, Pence was his running mate. Um, and, and I wonder if I you're almost gonna... did. Yeah, I, uh, I, I am happy with, uh, with, with Pence being uh vp um you know and and if if that's the thing that gets voters out there then then who the vp candidate is on either ticket is important um and so you know he he cannot be uh so far removed from what's actually happening in the democrat party to think that he's going to end up on that ticket um and so i i don't know i i don't know what's going to end up happening as a result. Um, but him dropping out and sort of endorsing Biden was was kind of strange again i it makes all the sense of the world from an economic perspective especially when you consider the the pandemic that's going on um you know it's it's something where even if you wanted to campaign that would have been severely limited and if the campaign's severely limited you're basically relying on Biden to make a huge mistake that ends his campaign and you know, obviously, that's not exactly how you want to run your campaign. Is is hoping someone else fails. That's not that's not how you want to ascend to the presidency. Although at a certain point, you probably just don't care. Um. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. And then of course, uh, Barack Obama came out earlier today. I think it was we're recording this on Tuesday the fourteenth, and uh, he came out earlier today and. Uh, endorse joe biden now that there is no democratic field uh, opposing him
1: i am so glad you said it because if you didn't i was going to for an actual year the guy that you picked as your vp was not someone you were willing to stand behind and they're like it's all over the news uh, obama endorses biden all of this and in and of itself that that is noteworthy a former president endorsing a presidential candidate that is noteworthy but it, i don't think that it's the victory that some people are going to treat it like it is like that is going to be like there are going to be milk cartons with that endorsement slapped on them and it's going to be on every box of Reese's Puffs from here to Kilimanjaro. And it's going to make me want to claw my eyes out, mainly because why on earth would I be eating Reese's Cups on Mount Kilimanjaro? But that's beside the point. So,
0: You're practicing yeah. social distancing. That's why. Um, <laughs> no, I looking at that endorsement, um, I get why he made it. but yeah it's the it's the waiting that's problematic you wonder why i i can understand him wanting to wait as long as he can on things um because if obama endorses someone that does not end up getting the nomination that becomes very problematic because obama is wildly popular within the democratic party uh And so, you know, if someone wins the nomination who didn't have Obama's endorsement, that maybe that uh, portends uh, lower turnout, lower enthusiasm on the part of the Democratic Party. Um, But at the same time, at a certain point, pretty quickly after Super Tuesday, that that would have been when I expected it, when the when the race was when it got down to Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, who's Chances were almost non-existent at that point and Tulsi Gabbard whose chances were basically non-existent at that point. Um, why not go ahead and support Biden then when it actually still meant something like, you know, Bernie's odds were very long at that point anyway. You know, if any time between Super Tuesday and last Wednesday would have made more sense than now, you know, I Again, I I wonder what the angle is on waiting there, Uh, because if you want your endorsement to mean something, you should have made it earlier. Uh, At this point, it's just, well, of course, he's going to endorse. Uh, Of course, he's going to endorse Biden as a candidate. He's not endorsing Trump. So, you know, endorse Biden against Trump. And it doesn't really look like at this point there's going to be a viable third party candidate. The exception might be. And I realize it's far fetched, but there's talks of potentially Mark Cuban running. He would make, I think, more noise than people realize. Uh, not necessarily because he's the most popular person, but because he's incredibly visible. Um, and he brings he would he would probably draw more Trump supporters than uh, Biden supporters if he does decide to run. But you know we'll we'll hold off on that until he actually decides to run. But there's some speculation he might. But barring him running, it doesn't look like there's going to be a third party candidate uh, that attracts any attention, certainly not as much as uh, the attention Gary Johnson got four years ago uh, when he ran. And so I, I just, you know, waiting this long, you know, it, it's, it's really an implicit indictment of, of Biden's capability, uh, at the very least of Biden's appeal as a presidential candidate.
1: Right. And I would even even best case scenario, like I'm trying to envision like a best good faith reason. I would posit it could just honestly be as simple as um, Obama wanting to endorse blue no matter who. And or even just not wanting to endorse Biden too early because then people would say, well, of course you endorsed him. He's your VP. Uh, He's bragged about being good friends with you. IRL, outside of the office, but these third-party candidates, uh, some of them just really excite me, if for nothing else, but they've given me something to laugh at. Joe Walsh, who I know wasn't a third-party candidate, but attempted to make a run for president, fueled more by his distaste for Donald Trump than anything else. Uh, I just, I loved that campaign more than I would love my own children if I had any. Because in all of his furor, he forgot to file to run for president in his home state. So anytime you can be blisteringly incompetent for my personal amusement is a good day for me. But as for the Libertarian Party, um, there's been different people trying to buy for the nominations. There's always going to be John McAfee because John McAfee is what people think normal libertarians are like. But I'm curious, actually, to see uh, who – there are two people I have in mind, uh, Judge Jim Gray and his VP uh, pick, Larry Sharp. And I'm interested because Larry Sharp has been, in libertarian circles, a known figure for several years, especially because of his efforts to run, I believe, as mayor of New York. Let me double-check on that just because – well, it wouldn't be fair to talk about him and not get details like that right. So um yeah. Let's see he is uh, and he lost a Bill Weld. Good grief. Why did we pick Bill Weld of all people? But a sharp excites me because uh personally just from uh reading from him, watching his material, that sort of thing. He is a very uh, tempered person, uh, very, to put it bluntly, he's very articulate. He clearly thinks through his ideas before putting them out there. And it's just, he's good people. I like Larry Sharp, so I hope he can build traction. Jim Gray, I do not know much about, but... Um, If he's running for a libertarian party seat, that puts him in better estimations in my book than a lot of other people. So I'll be excited to see how that pans out.
0: So I'm looking right now. You know, the libertarians have their primaries, which, you know, might not be as influential, of course, as the others. But I'm looking at the always venerable Wikipedia page for the 2020 libertarian presidential primary. Keeping in mind, uh, this is the same primary. Uh, that four years ago nominated a fairly respectable uh, Gary Johnson, right? Um, you know, Gary respectable Johnson... Respectable in scare quotes. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Gary Johnson had a resume. Now, granted, he sometimes, once he got national attention, he really spaced out. He revealed himself to just not be able to handle that sort of attention. Right. Um, but, you know, still... Former governor, right, you know, someone that would have at least known what he was doing in office. Currently, in the presidential primary, you have two individuals in the Libertarian Party who have won states, plus uh, no preference won the state of North Carolina, for whatever that's worth. Um, Now, I'm not sure how up-to-date this is. If
1: I may, I'm very sorry to interrupt. That is that is the most libertarian election result possible
0: (laughs) yeah no preference um (laughs) no preference has 8.55 percent of the total libertarian vote right now your uh your front runner right now according to uh the official data is jacob hornberger he is the founder and president of the future freedom foundation uh he was a He was an independent candidate uh, for the U.S. Senate in Virginia. He's from Virginia uh, in 2002, uh, and he was a libertarian candidate for president in 2000. Um, He has won six contests. Second place, 10% of the vote uh, from the state of Massachusetts after having won one contest, it looks like. Vermin Supreme.
1: Forever in our hearts, vermin supreme.
0: Yes, and apparently forever on the ballot. His experience is listed as he is a performance artist and activist. I sure hope he's the first part. Candidate for president in 1992, 1996, 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016. Candidate for mayor of Detroit in 1989. Candidate for mayor of Baltimore in 1987. He's most known for wearing a boot on his head, being uh, pro-dental hygiene, pro-giving-everyone-a-pony, and pro-zombie-apocalypse-preparedness. And he does have an official running mate, uh, Spike Cohen. I don't know who Spike Cohen is.
1: Gosh, How do you manage to have a guy named Spike Cohen be the boring side of your ticket? I mean, other than the obvious of being vermin supreme, but um, let,
0: let, let me uh, let me read Spike Cohen's platform. Uh, it's it's a little little longer, uh, but I think it's worth your time. My name is Spike Cohen, and I am running for the Libertarian nomination for vice president. My beliefs line up solid, solidly with the Libertarian Party platform, with the only exceptions being. When I think it doesn't go quite far enough from promoting maximum freedom. I understand that the platform is an attempt to compromise between different positions and I completely respect that. But as an individual candidate, my policy is anarchy. With that said, I realize that as vice president, I will not be able to simply snap my fingers and make government go away. For that reason, I am willing and eager to compromise as hard as I absolutely need to in order to change the government from the inside. As we all know, compromising on principle with sociopaths who want to enslave the world is a surefire way to achieve positive change. To that end, I am unleashing my verbal agreement for an even better America, which builds upon Vermin's four-point platform of free ponies, mandatory toothbrushing, zombie power, and killing baby Hitler to create the greatest world any of us could have possibly imagined. I pledge that all these things will happen in the first hundred days of our administration or else I will resign and be replaced with baby Yoda. Um, There's a gigantic picture of his face down in his bio about how he uh, he realized he couldn't do drugs the rest of his life when he was 16, which that's good that he did that. But next to his platform, there's a picture of a waffle.
1: You know. that is just that's art like gosh i feel like i just listened to a death grips album
0: like sam nobody's going to know what you're talking about
1: i know but that's that's part of it like good grief like uh, i feel like i just drove through like Arkansas on the highway blaring every track from X-Military at max volume. Just have mercy on my soul. I'm emotionally exhausted after listening to that blurb.
0: Oh, it's, uh, his, uh, the page dedicated to him is pretty, pretty fantastic. It's verbinsupreme2020.com slash spike. And, uh, man, it's worth your time, especially if you want to get hungry for waffles.
1: Like, I, like, I made the reference to Death Grips, but, like, now I feel not like the song Tachyon, but I feel like an actual Tachyon particle, just having heard that. And for those, for those of you wondering, a Tachyon is a particle that is studied, I believe, in theoretical physics, that is incapable of moving more slowly than the speed of light. So okay, so so
0: I, I I just found his his platform, the short versions of each of his positions. Um okay, so I'm gonna read you these and then, then we'll probably move on. But okay, so so hobbies. Uh full legalization of recreational plutonium. Bread Yes <laughs> bread. Free cheesy bread with the purchase of any federal explosives permit. Okay. Uh, defense. Retrofitting the ponies of any willing owners with 20-millimeter Vulcan cannons.
1: That wouldn't work for logistics reasons. Ponies can't support the weight of a 20-millimeter cannon.
0: Badger. Literally just a badger.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm down with it.
0: <laughs> Here we go. Here's a deep cut for you. History. Also going back in time to kill baby Woodrow Wilson, which ultimately makes killing Hitler unnecessary, but we're still going to do that too.
1: I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. I I mean, historians agree killing baby Hitler would be redundant if you just got rid of Woodrow Wilson, not even killing him. Like I would just slap him into unconsciousness before he proposed to leave nations. Yeah.
0: Uh, Here, here's the last three are my favorite ones. Taxes. Replacing the income tax with a lottery where the winner gets to sign the Constitution and or the face of any politician of their choice.
1: He, like, you might laugh at that, but lotteries and raffles have a time-honored place as a substitute for income tax in the United States. That is how we paid for things once upon a time. So, yeah. Okay, I, I'm with them so far.
0: Waffle House. Waffle House is on every corner. This policy is a blatant act of cronyism to the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus for purely political purposes.
1: I mean, I'm, I...
0: I'm all yeah. about that. I'm all
1: about that. I, I endorse like how do i become a member of this caucus because i feel like i already am one
0: and then finally supreme impeaching every member of the supreme court and replacing them with the janitor his name is reginald and he and he will be our king hashtag all hail reginald
1: mean, okay i mean if that's the worst thing that happens to the supreme court yeah
0: so to uh to make the story short here i don't think there's going to be a third party nominee
1: Yeah, I don't think Uh, so either. Like, as much as all of that thrills the chaotic neutral part of my soul, I don't... And for reference, if you put me on a political spectrum, like the political chart, I've actually done this multiple times, I am x-axis 94, y-axis negative 75. So just have that as your point of reference for where I'm at politically. As much as I like Larry Sharp and I think he is a respectable person and potential candidate, I don't think libertarians are gonna get much traction anytime soon. And that hurts to say, but just gotta be realistic.
0: No, it felt like it felt like four years ago there was a much better chance just because I I think Trump was hated more then than he is now, and I think Hillary was I think Hillary is a more disliked candidate. Uh
1: than biden will turn out to be and yeah biden and i'm very sorry to cut you off joe biden isn't going to post a picture of himself as a kid on his birthday and say happy birthday to this future president or rather i doubt she personally posted that she's not going to green light someone being able to post that for her
0: yep and so it's uh that's something where you know i i I think there will be a time where there's a third party that's able to enter the discussion again, but this this campaign cycle just isn't it. If, if it was, I think we would already know. We would already know who it was going to be, because by this time, I want to say by this time, four years ago, we knew that Gary Johnson was a serious candidate. And, in fact, his popularity started to decline uh, right after debate season. You know, there was this whole, you know, let Gary debate thing. Uh, that was a hashtag. That was a sort of a movement. He didn't get on the debate stage, but he got interviewed a few times and then he revealed himself to maybe, you know, not be the peop- the, the person that we thought he was. And uh, that was tough. So I, I've got I've got a couple of things um, I want to run by you here before we before we wrap up. Um, and to be clear, one, one of these is actually something I didn't mention to you earlier, uh, but I was thinking of as we talked about it. Um, you are probably familiar with. John DeBerry and have probably uh, seen some things about his situation. Um, I am and why he would want to be of particular importance for those for those listening who who don't know. Uh, and then I'll, Sam, I'll I'll have you comment on this. Uh, John DeBerry uh, is a member of I believe it's the Tennessee House of Representatives. Uh, he represents a part of Shelby County, a part of Memphis, Tennessee. He's been serving actively for, uh, 26 years. I want to say it is, uh, he is a part of the democratic party, but he does not line up, uh, with their ideals on things. Um, namely, and perhaps most importantly for this discussion, uh, he is adamantly pro-life. Um, and he's by all accounts, always been that way. Uh, And it came up within the past year or so that he had an opportunity to vote accordingly on a measure in Tennessee. And, you know, he commented that he finally got the opportunity to vote uh, in a pro-life way on an issue. Well, this past week, we found out that the Democratic Party was basically removing him from their ticket uh, and did so late enough to where. He's not going to be able to run for his seat uh, in in the fall again, that he won't, uh, the deadlines already passed for him to file, I guess, as an independent candidate. And so basically they, they took him off the ballot because they don't like where he stands on a number of issues, abortion being sort of at the forefront of that. And, uh, he's now not going to be able to run, uh, because he stood up for his ideals, um, uh also is a uh member of one of the churches of christ there in the memphis area couldn't tell you which one um he preaches pretty regularly he's a he's a pretty fantastic uh, speaker actually if you bring him in for an event or two Uh, i've always enjoyed getting to hear him speak um but it was kind of a kind of a shock uh you know it's i guess it's not a shock in the sense that, you know, you would expect the modern Democratic Party to uh, force out everyone uh, who doesn't line up with them on certain key issues and, you know, the abortion issue being one of them. Uh, but it was still, I think, a shock uh, to see someone so well respected, uh, someone who's known for being bipartisan uh, on a lot of issues, who's willing to compromise to get worked on on most issues, uh, and someone who's incredibly well respected uh, basically get forced out uh, by a party that no longer wants him there. And so, you know, that that came out this past week and, you know, it, it it made me sad and proud at the same time. It made me sad for obvious reasons, but proud that, you know, if he was going to go out, uh, if he was going to, you know, if, if, if he's going to be removed, that it was going to be uh, based on a principled thing rather than you know some other issue that came up and so uh that i think you know for uh for us who share that background with him uh for those of us that have heard him speak and uh have some sort of relationship with him i, I want to say he's on the board at freed hardeman too and that seems right i know he's got some pretty strong connections to the school i i, d- I forget exactly uh it what his titled role is um officially with the school if he has one but i know he's kept in close contact with the school uh but that that was that was a bit of interesting and tough news uh to see come out of tennessee this past week
1: really it, it is and there are lots of ways i could phrase my opinion on this so some of which would make some people very upset with me a uh, story of the century i can make people upset with me but um The best, shortest, and most concise way I have to say this is that if you're close enough that you can touch the third rail on a track, you're close enough to get hit by a train. And that's what happened with uh, Mr. Uh, DeBerry. Um, I... Frankly, I don't recall having ever heard him speak or preach, uh, not because I have anything against the idea of going to, I just don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sure I have, but to all accounts, he's a perfectly respectable man. Um, and like you mentioned, it's good that it was a question of principle that drove him out rather than scandal or the like, uh, if there were scandal, I'm sure that's what would have been used to drive him out. But ultimately, um, Uh, the DNC played their hand. And at a national level, they already did this by making it clear that they did not want a candidate that would not be strong on defending abortion. Uh, That's part of the prelude to uh, Biden flip-flopping on his positions, especially in uh, support of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, His positions there being confusing and intertwining, mainly because the Hyde Amendment is pointless anyway because money is fungible but that's a different story for a different day he again he touched the third rail and got hit by the train and i hate it for him but i do hope that he continues to have a career in politics because voices like his are needed uh especially because he's a very pragmatic man by all accounts
0: yeah and and what i hope is uh As much as I hate what happened to him, I hope that it's an outlier and not a trend. Um, You know, it's – you want uh, diversity of thought even within your party. Um, You know, there there are certainly Republicans uh, who vote on issues – I'm not a member of the Republican Party, but um, there are Republicans who vote on things. Uh, who vote in ways that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, and hold positions that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, and Republicans disagree with other Republicans on things. That That's fine. And Democrats, at least for the longest time, have, but we're, we're seeing that change. Like you said, at the national level, we're already there. Um, if you don't line up uh, on certain issues with the Democratic Party, you're going to completely and totally lose your support. Um, but at the state level, we've got, you know, we still have more conservative Democrats on certain social issues uh, and on other issues. You know, I'm thinking of one out here in Oklahoma. We've got one, uh, David Perryman, who's also a member of the Church of Christ. Um, David, uh, he, he's a Democratic member of the Oklahoma House, of the Oklahoma Congress, uh, and you know, it's something where what what happens to someone like him, what happens to other individuals who don't see eye to eye with the democratic party on every single issue. Um, You know, it's, it's something where, because it happened to, uh, because it happened to DeBerry, someone who is very, very, very well respected um, by most people, just by not by the right people, apparently. Um, But because it happened to him, you have to think, well, is it, is it going to, is it going to happen to, my democratic senator who, or my democratic, uh, representative who I agree with on certain social issues. Um, yeah, that, that's sort of the fear there is that, you know, he, he sets a trend that he, it really feels like he's been made an example of. Um, and so, you know, tough to see, uh, tough to see him, uh, but, you know, forced out like that, you hope he he he's able to turn it around. What what you hope is that he's able to do what he wants to do. And if, you know, if he decides to retire after this, well, he served for 26 years uh, and he's done so well, by all accounts, you know, it's if he wants to retire, he can retire. It, I mean, no one's going to fault him for that, basically saying I'm done. I don't want to fight this anymore. Um, but at the same time, uh, what you don't want to do is, is see diversity of thought in either party uh, sort of squashed. Uh, you, you don't want you don't want his ousting to be the example and turn into the rule uh, rather than the exception. Um, and that that's true in either party. That's true at all levels. Um, you know, you, when when parties aren't allowed to have diversity of thought, that's when you get into situations where the two choices that you're offered for whatever office are both bad. Um, because I might not agree with either representative either choice on you know the two or three most important issues to me so you know we'll we'll see what comes of it i hate it for him he'll a he, uh, you know like you said he's a very pragmatic guy he made a speech right at about a year ago on the tennessee house floor uh, about being a man and, and leadership and uh, great great speech i'd encourage you to go hunt that down Uh, But, you know, hopefully, like I said, this is the exception. Um, I did want to run one more thing by you here. uh, And that is, I think we're starting to get to a point based off of what I'm seeing on Facebook, which, you know, is just a repository of factual information and is truly a reflection of modern times. Um, But based on what I'm seeing on social media, based on what I'm seeing uh, in the news, based off of different stories that I'm seeing, where Christians, where congregations, churches, um, assemblies of really any nature are starting to get a little antsy, um, that people are starting to get antsy about the economy reopening, sure, but are also starting to get antsy about churches reopening. Um, you know, now at, at, at Bridge Creek, we've got a pretty good understanding that we're going to do what's best for our membership and we're going to do what's best for the community. Um, and, you know, we're, we're sort of waiting this out, but I see some people uh, starting to get antsy and, and it makes me wonder if congregations are going to if we're still in lockdown in may uh you know here in about two and a half weeks uh, because a lot of these a lot of these uh shelter in place orders expire at the end of may i think all of them that have been issued will have expired by or end of april rather and all of them that have been issued uh will expire by mid-may including the the big one in la um I wonder if congregations are going to start to become antsy about how they handle their services if the shelter in place orders are extended uh, out past mid-May. Um, you know, because I, I I think a lot of people myself included are deeply uncomfortable uh, with the idea of the government telling churches not to assemble, but I can also maintain that position and, understand that it's still actually the best thing right now because of health reasons for us not to assemble in person like we normally would um but i wonder if more and more congregations willingness to sort of go along with that is going to dwindle over time to where if this is still going on in a month you're going to see maybe some congregations maybe some churches maybe some assemblies start to sort of openly defy the government's orders. I I realize you've already seen that to some extent. You've seen some specific churches not make any changes at any point. Um, But I wonder if there will be sort of a groundswell of that sort of idea uh, take hold uh, within the next month or so if this is extended out.
1: I think the big issue will be a feeling of inconsistency. Uh, because that's been, for a lot of people, the concern. There's the easy one uh, that people can point to, like Planned Parenthood still being open for abortions. And in seen one case, uh, purely anecdotal, I always want to be clear about that, where they were open exclusively to provide abortion services. So if there are going to be people who will understandably and I think rightly say that if killing babies is essential, then... Church services are just as essential. But uh, Albert Moeller made the point in the briefing yesterday, which is a program I'd recommend to our listeners, uh, not that he needs our help to get more viewers, but um, if anything, it's the other way around. But anyway, uh, fishing for that endorsement aside, uh, he made the point that there are going to be people who, for instance, can recognize, okay, like hundreds of people gathering into a building, that's not a good idea. And he even wrote an article, uh, co-authored rather, an article about how generally wisdom should dictate not a gathering. But he has also recently started to note, okay, but like drive-in services, for instances, where people are in their cars, windows up, no person-to-person interaction, why is that any worse than a person going to a drive through and picking up food or why is that any worse than people going to a grocery store and people will argue that it's unessential and the response to that is it's not essential to you. And the question of the consistency which some of these principles are applied because it is dubious to be fair. Even if you agree in principle that we should stay home, that we should worship at a distance, that sort of thing, it is not, I think, unreasonable to kind of side-eye everyone shaming people for going to a drive-in service at church when they're tweeting that from the drive through line at McDonald's. And I don't think that's unfair.
0: I tend to agree. Um, You know, it's with those drive-in services and being essential. Some governments have gone out of their way to let uh, churches know that what they do is essential. I know uh, Greg Abbott in Texas uh, did that this past week and labeled them as essential, not so that they would uh, necessarily gather together as hundreds and thousands of people come into buildings, but so that there's an understanding from the government that. Uh, you know, there there's at least that appreciation expressed toward what they do and that they can still function and, and do some of those things day to day that they were providing beforehand. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, Alabama, I know, came out when they did their shelter in place, order their safer at home, however they termed it. Um, basically, anything, any organization, any industry that was not specifically mentioned as being unessential Uh, in the state is listed as being essential or at the very least is implicitly allowed to remain open Uh, now i brought up i think two weeks ago with regard to gun stores still being open in alabama because they weren't on the list and someone asked governor ivy about that and she said if it's not on the list they stay open um and so i i i agree with you there uh that you know you, you try and look at those things and see okay what what's what's the difference between a drive-in service and going to the grocery store, which that's going to be the big key one because going to the grocery store you're around you might be around another hundred hundred and fifty people um, while being, you know, just out sort of in the open with them rather than in your car. Uh, I, I think with a drive through it might be slightly different just because, The contact with them is is very, very limited, right? You're you're only at the window. You're hopefully at the window for less than a minute, right? Uh, But, you know, it's still there. Um, What I...
1: And that contact even is more limited because, controversial opinion, a lot of these churches don't practice weekly communion. And we can argue about whether they should or shouldn't. Of course, I think we both agree that they should, but... Mm -hmm. Again, if you're just in your car listening to a broadcast, like a short-range radio broadcast, windows up, you and maybe your family. Yep. You're less contact than a grocery store or a or a, sorry, a drive-through. I had to really reclaim my train of thought there for a second. Hey, you're good. So that uh, that push to say well this is okay but this isn't it after a certain point even if it's unintentional it starts to look like targeting and when it starts to look like targeting is when it starts to starts to get people that aren't even in favor of letting churches stay open during this time say hold on a second We need to reexamine this and to be perfectly fair and clear, because I know that there are going to be people who think they're very brilliant and much more intelligent than they actually are, who will say, well, do you want the same for synagogues and mosques? Yes, absolutely. I don't want police officers harassing Muslims who are in their cars praying to their God, even if I think they're wrong. I don't want them getting harassed. The same is true for Jews. The same is true for any religion in general. I want them to have the same freedoms that I have. I want them to agree with me, but until I can get them to agree with me, I want them to be free to disagree with me.
0: Uh, You know, with that, I think for me, where I'm sort of drawing the line on this is, you know, CDC's laid out these recommendations, uh, which at present moment, theirs go through the end of, of, uh, of the month. The official recommendations have come down, especially with regard to, you know, the prohibition against gatherings of 10 or more. Well, what constitutes a gathering, right? Um, Is it in your car? Is it in a building? Uh, That sort of thing, because I I tend to agree. I think there's a difference. And to your point about offering communion, um, you can still have those drive-in services and mitigate uh, communion with regard to, you know, just having everyone bring their own. Um, that's effectively what most of us are doing in our homes right now, anyway. Uh, and, and to be clear, I'm not I'm not necessarily more or less in favor of a drive-in service. I'm I'm uh, perfectly fine, not thrilled, but perfectly fine to go ahead and uh, you know during this pandemic, while we have the need to be restricted uh, in what we're doing. Um, I'm, I'm fine with the virtual service uh, uh, doing that, but, you know, different people have different ideas about it. Uh, my problem on the congregation's end is when, uh, is when they look at what the government has recommended, when they look at what health experts have recommended, and they say, we don't care. We're doing the thing that we've always done. Um, you know, you've seen some Churches do this and my church here, I largely mean, you know, in the broadest possible sense. Um, but you've seen churches do this uh, where they've basically said we're not we're not changing a thing and people have gotten sick as a result um, where they've openly defied, you know, their own their own government uh, with regard to that for really no good reason right um and so i I think there's a line there uh it, it there are some situations where it's going to be difficult to sort of parse out that line because if we're going on five six months uh which i don't think will happen but it could if we're going on five six months uh of this happening i can't think of any congregations that are still going to be real thrilled with the idea of of a virtual service or anything like that um And so, as far as when that changes, I I think the why there is fairly important too. My worry is that we're going to have some congregations here in about in about a month who just get sick of meeting virtually or meeting uh, in a drive through style or drive yeah drive through whatever style um, who haven't had and I think this is important haven't had cases of coronavirus within their congregation who ultimately um, will start resuming services with no other uh, information present as to why they should do that. Um, That, I think, is where you start to cross into territory where that might be a mistake, um, is to simply change what you're doing back to what you think is more normal simply because you've become impatient. Uh, There's there's not – uh, there aren't very many Christians who feel very good about what's happening right now, to be clear. Um, nobody likes this. Nobody wants this. Uh, but when it comes to getting things back to the way they need to be, um, just simply becoming impatient with the circumstance is not the reason uh, that things need to go back to how they need to be. Um If there's clear information that says it's, you know, the the risk has been significantly lowered to the point where it's, you know, maybe not any different than, you know, the the flu or what have you. Uh, Or if the government comes out and says, you know, we've, we've lifted those restrictions and, and to be clear, I'm not saying the government's restrictions are the end all be all in dictating and what we should do. But at the same time, at this point, given that, uh, most congregations feel like they have other reasons for altering what they're doing. Uh, it should take more information. It should take new information to sort of sort of change that. It shouldn't just be, you know, we waited out as long as you said, and now you're extending it. Uh, and so we're just not going to care about what you have to say anymore.
1: Right. And I think that's going to be the big thing. The question is always going to be, OK. When does a person's willingness to trust a government run out? And I think we're going to see that because they're like, you said five to six months as a possibility. I have seen the La La Land projections of people saying that this could last 12 to 18 months. Um, Things will happen if this goes out to 18 months Things that a lot of people are not prepared for because the general rule is you are a missed meal away at any given time from total anarchy. You may, you may say you're three missed meals from anarchy. Okay, fine. But one way or another, when people start feeling that urge to get back to what they view as normalcy and when they can't see see the reason for why it shouldn't be normal anymore they're going to start getting antsy and this is this is a common practical explanation for sin Uh, people feel tempted and drawn towards sin because they can't see uh, they can't see a good reason for something to be prohibited I don't agree with that explanation but it is one and so when I think you're right here in a few months if it continues we're going to see that patients tested And while I agree, impatience is not a good decision-making criteria, and generally, common sense and actually thinking about what you're doing should be the order of the day. Eventually, your capacity for those things is overshadowed by your desire to buck against an authority that seems arbitrary.
0: Yeah, well, and I think the longer we go on, um the more that authority will seem arbitrary whether or not it should seem arbitrary. Uh, and that's,
1: that's right. sort of seem is the operant word there.
0: Right. And that that's what I'm getting at is uh right now I I am not tinfoil hat to the point where I think you know this is all a government ploy or a Democrat ploy or a Republican ploy or a ploy of any kind uh to where um you know they want that there are Americans who want the American economy to, ta- to tank and put, uh, you know, thousands of lives at risk and whatnot. I'm not to that point. I don't – for my money, there's no hard evidence of any of that. Uh, I There might be an argument for China's government wanting some of those things, but that's – even that's a little spotty at best. Um, and so when when I look at that, I think, okay – They're not issuing these guidelines, uh, based off of some desire to, uh, control the populace and bend the populace to its will. I'm not that cynical yet. I've seen other people who are, I'm not, I'm not there. Um, and I think a lot of people are with me on that in that, you know, they view the guidelines as being the government trying to respond, uh, the best that a dysfunctional government can respond to the situation but the longer and longer it goes the more and more people are going to look at the government and say you know you don't have a good reason for doing this nothing has changed um when in reality that's kind of the point right like now new information comes in every day and projections change and all all that stuff but you people are going to look at the government and they're going to wonder more and more each day why it's still like this um, when, in reality, because nothing has changed, nothing we're doing should change. Uh, you know, my main argument is that our our behavior uh, should change, whether or not we gather in large groups again should change based on new information that comes out, and so. You know, I'm not sure where we're going to be in a month with this because, you know, putting aside uh, the possibility of this lasting into the fall, which please, please don't affect college football. uh, But putting aside the possibility of this lasting into the fall, um, I think you're going to start to see some impatience mid-May. You're going to see kids quote unquote graduate high school and college and miss their graduations or have it rescheduled. I know Freed Hardman's already rescheduled theirs to August. Um, You're going to see people uh, make different decisions based off of impatience and based off of what they thought was going to happen when all this started happening in mid-March. You know, in mid-March we thought, okay, let's, you know, let's do six weeks of this. Uh, and maybe the NHL will come back. Maybe the NBA will come back. Maybe we'll have a, uh, we'll need to take a few weeks off of school and then, you know, everything will be okay again. Uh, and now we're at the point where it'll be something else if any of those, uh, winter and spring sports leagues come, come back again. Um, and then beyond that, there's, I mean, you know, there's no telling, uh, how far out this is going to last. Um, I don't, I don't like to be the one to speculate on these things, uh, because me speculating on how long I think it lasts suggests that I've got some authority on this, or at the very least I've got some insight. I really don't, um, and most congregations, uh, most leaders of congregations probably would do well to recognize that they, they're not much better off. There are some, uh, who probably have a little bit of insight, um. You know, we've got at Bridge Creek, we've got one guy who's a neurosurgeon uh, and he's got a little bit more insight into what this looks like from a medical perspective. We've leaned on him pretty heavily in our decision making, Um, you know, because he he actually understands what he's talking about with this. But even he's limited to some extent. I mean, he doesn't uh, get the hard data in real time that, you know, people in the government would get and people in some of these independent agencies would get. And so, you know, it, it's something where when we're making these decisions, um, when we're making decisions about what we're going to do, I just, I'm concerned that it's not going to be based off of the right criteria. I still think that we can make decisions and disagree on the decisions that would be making. That would be made, and, and, and that's fine. I think congregations have been doing that. There are some congregations who are just fine with the drive-in service, and that's the bare minimum they're willing to do, and there are other congregations who are fine with the virtual service, and they'd rather not do a drive-in service because uh, a virtual service might be more normal, and all those things are fine, and we can disagree on all of those things. Uh, I just want to be sure that the, the decisions that we are making as congregations, the decisions that we're making about gathering together, are based on the right set of criteria and the right information, uh, rather than a lack of patience or, you know, just a general disdain for governmental authority uh, or, or anything like that. Um, because when when they become uh, uh, when they become based on those other things, we're we're, we're starting to exit the realm of reality uh, and starting to enter the realm of well, maybe this isn't as big of a deal as everyone says it is, um, and, and sort of uh, going against the grain in that way, in a way that I think uh, I I personally think is quite inappropriate.
1: And and to be fair, it may end up not being as big a deal as we thought, but you shouldn't take that position just to be a contrarian. Like I love being a contrarian as much as anyone else. I mean, I know that's gonna surprise you, Chris, but sometimes contrarianism isn't the play.
0: Yeah, no, it's um Contrarianism for the sake of contrarianism When people's lives are at risk Is definitely not the play um, I, I I look at this situation And Again I, I don't think it's going to be I don't think it'll be most congregations um, I don't think It'll be most Situations But I think we will start to see people Become more and more impatient Um, And I mean, I, I feel it. Uh, I mean, I don't want this to last any longer than it needs to, uh, but I do want it to last as long as it needs to last. Um, and, and that's sort of the key is sort of figuring out when do we, uh, for the sake of public health, um, for the sake of keeping our memberships safe. Uh, we There's a sense in which we need to be doing this to protect people, um when do we need to stop and at that point we can stop but that that when we need to stop and when it makes the most sense based off the information that we need to stop is when we need to stop and we don't need to do it sooner just because we're impatient or cynical or want to be contrarian or what have you one of the things that's been immensely frustrating through this whole process is uh is people saying um You've had individuals talking about, well, they're they're taking away my rights and they're they're trying to control churches. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, that's not true in every situation. Um, It's simply not true in every single situation that the government has uh, prohibited so much as requested you uh, to not do that. Right. The CDC guidelines in particular um, were not. I mean, there's no federal law against gatherings. There are many state laws, there are many local laws, but the CDC guidelines uh, don't constitute law. And likewise, some of the state laws – well, state laws have been inconsistent about this. Um, And then the other thing is when the government is doing these things, uh, you can be wary of the government having too much power. I certainly am. We certainly opened our discussion today talking about that. But at the same time – In order to claim that the government is out to get you, uh, as, uh, through these, uh, restrictions and through these, uh, you know, through these different things, you either have to argue that the government is being extremely aggressive, which in some case, some governments have been, you've seen people at some drive-in churches arrested, um, or you have to argue that the government is—that once again, this is something. This virus, this pandemic, is something the government wanted. And and if that's your position, I'm not there with you. Uh, and, and to be clear, I don't think it's your position specifically, Sam. Um, but if you're listening to to us, and that's your position, how dare you, Christopher? Yeah,
1: that's that's it. How dare uh, you? Because that is my position here yes. and now. I'm kidding. I, yeah. I don't have it in me to just outright lie to someone like that. I'm more than happy to joke. I I, I can't do that.
0: Well, it's something where uh, we're just... uh, Eventually, we will get through this. It's not going to happen quickly. Um, You know, most schools shut down for the rest of the year, at least on campus instruction. They didn't do that thinking that this would be done by mid April. Right. This is the week four, I think of Kelsey, um, not having students when she would have had students. Right. If, right. And, you know, if, if the government thought, if, people in power thought that we were going to be through this by now if they if they thought that was the most likely thing they wouldn't have canceled school for the rest of the year but as it stands i'm not aware of a school system that's planning on reopening
1: right tentatively schools in mississippi like there's decisions to be made discussions to be had but schools present a unique challenge because In the same way that John Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols, I'm going to go ahead and say that, controversial opinion, public schools are breeding grounds for biological warfare, or at least functionally they are. Because if you want to get sick, there are two great places to go to get sick, a hospital or a public school. And that's not the fault of public schools. It's just because... That's what happens when you have hundreds of children in the same place.
0: So I'm going to throw a third caveat or a third group in there and one that's still problematic in light of all this. Um, Public schools, hospitals and daycares. Uh, And if you're in a situation where absolutely where all of the parents and or guardians in the house are considered essential workers and still have to work, those kids have to go somewhere. Um, Ideally, it'd be with other family, but. You know, there are some daycares still open um, because there are people who need to work, right? Uh, if kids aren't going to daycare, it might be because parents aren't able to afford daycare more than it is daycare's closing. Um, but w- with regard to with regard to that, one of the things a lot of schools school systems had to consider, including I know here in Oklahoma, is that you know if we cancel school, where are these kids going? Uh, you know, and there's the question with some of them just not having good home lives, and I know Kelsey's taught some kids in the past who were, uh, uh, you know, who, whose situations were transient. Um, but when it comes to when it comes to that, you also consider, okay, they're going to go to daycare, they're still going to be around other groups of kids. Are, are we really containing the spread uh, if if we cancel school? And the answer is. Probably, to some extent, you're, you're limiting the spread. But what you're also doing is you're, is you're being sure that you're not liable for the spread. Um, and that's, that's part of the reason you saw all these places and all these events and all, all this everything cancel. It's not simply because they want to limit the spread, although that's a part of it. It's also got to do with liability, right? Like, you don't want to uh, get sued out of house and home because you were ruled to have been negligent. Uh, in handling something that could have been prevented uh, with regard to the spread of coronavirus and so I, I don't know um, I don't know what it's going to be like moving forward I do know that you know there was an understanding it was going to take longer than four or five weeks uh, the question is how much longer versus how much patience we have so thank you for listening to the Deep in the Tank podcast we'll see you next time